When it comes to preaching uh, a book of the Bible verse by verse, it's, um, it's always a difficulty in deciding what, what's essential and what has to be left out. Uh, that's what I face right away in this, in this first chapter. The, the, the material has so many nooks and crannies in it to explore, but, but this is not a seminary course. This is a a message. This is a, a sermon. And so my hope is that we provide a, a, enough to edify everyone, to provoke those who want more, to dig for it, and then above all, that we exalt our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Well, in the passage today and on into chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is going to speak about the superiority of Jesus over the angelic beings. The superiority of Jesus over the angelic beings. It takes the rest of this chapter, almost half chapter 2, to do this. The question is, why does he need to do that? I I mean, for you and I, this would be a no-brainer, right? If if I was to say to you this morning, all of you, um, Jesus is greater than than all the angels who would disagree with me. You you would all readily agree that he is greater. So why does the writer of Hebrews need to defend this so specifically for his audience? Now remember that last week, that in the first few verses of Hebrews 1, he tells us how how Jesus is greater than the prophets, because He is the final and full Word, the final revelation of who God is. In chapter 3, He's going to tell them that Jesus is not only greater than the prophets, He's greater than Moses. Greater than Moses. Well, for the Jewish believers of that time, They were raised in a tradition. We don't speak about it that much in our Protestant messages, but it's there in the Bible. And they were raised very, very sensitive to honoring angels because for them, they understood angels to be involved with the giving of the law to Moses. They understood that they were intimately involved in that. Now, when you read... Exodus 19, when the law is given, there's no mention of angels. But at the end of Moses' life, in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, he he says that God came down to Sinai, and He came down with with ten thousands of holy ones, and with flaming fire at his right hand. And flaming fire is one of the ways that the Bible describes angelic beings. God was not alone. He was surrounded by multitudes of angelic beings. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes about the law. And he he says to the Galatians as he's writing to them, that that, that this law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That would have been Moses. The law was put into place by angels through an intermediary of that being 
Moses. In a sermon in the book of Acts, as Paul is preaching to the Jews, he says to them, you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And in Hebrews chapter 2 that we'll get to next week, he says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's speaking about the law, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, we can go no farther than what the Scriptures say. Speculation about how that happened, etc., is really useless because we don't have those details. What's important here is that the Hebrews understood angelic beings to be involved with the delivery of the law to Moses. So you can see then why the writer commits at the very beginning in these first three chapters uh, to the authority and the glory of Jesus Christ, not only over the prophets and over Moses, but also over angelic beings. So let's begin with verse 3 and 4. We got through part of 3 last week, or uh, part of 4. going to read 3 and 4 to bring us up to speed here. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, what is this name? What is this name he's inherited? The passage says he's inherited a name more superior than that of the angels. Well, let's start with the angels. What is their name? What is this name of the angels that his name is greater than? Now, we we know there are individual names that angels have, right? For instance, who spoke to Mary? the angel Gabriel. Gabriel's mentioned. Michael, the archangel, he's mentioned in Daniel, in Jude, and in Revelation. That guy got around. So he's mentioned several times. But the writer here is not speaking about individual angelic beings. He's speaking about a name that describes their role. A name that describes their role role. And he sums it up. He sums up all the angelic beings in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1 at the end of his argument when he says this, are they not all ministering spirits? That's the title. That's their name. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Ministering spirits. Now, the writer says that Jesus has a more excellent name. What is that name? Now, if I asked anyone here what that great name is, you would probably reply what? Jesus. 
but that is not the name he's after here. That's not the name he's concerned with. He spoke of angels not by individual names like Gabriel and Michael, but by a title that described their role, ministering spirits. So what is the title, the name, the title of Jesus that describes his superior role to the angels? And that title is Son. Son. The only begotten Son of the Father. Now, what the writer's going to do here is he's going to use seven passages from the Old Testament. And for those of you who are familiar with the uh, symbology of numerals in the the Scriptures, what, what, what is seven symbolic of? Completion or perfection, that's right. And so, uh, the writer's going to perfectly and completely make his case for the superiority of Jesus over angels through seven passages. Six of them are from the Psalms, one of them from 2 Samuel. And he presents these as three pairs, three pairs of verses and then one climactic statement It's in the form of a question, but it is certainly a statement. Each pair has a particular emphasis. I want you to watch this with me, all right? So here we go. The first pair of Scriptures comes from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel. We read about them in verse 5 of Hebrews 1. So here's how he begins his argument with these two scriptures. For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, from, second, from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, and he quotes 2 Samuel, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, 2 Samuel 7 14. Now, the emphasis here is on what? It's on the unique relationship that God has with Jesus, unlike the relationship He has with angels. The angels are servants. Jesus is a son. He's the son. Now, we do need to pause here and ask, what do we make of the word today in Psalm 2? Can't underscore for you enough how important Psalm 2 was to the early church. What do we make of that word today? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Was there a point in time when Jesus came into being? Was there a point in time when Jesus was created? Now do not gloss over this. It is a central critical part of Christian doctrine that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Begotten does not mean created. The Son, the Logos, the the, the Word of God has always eternally been part of the triune God. Always. Begotten speaks to His incarnation 
and his manifestation of his the manifestation of his glory and power. Remember, John in his gospel said that the Word became flesh. The eternal Word, the eternal Son, became flesh, became the God-man, and dwelt among us. Begotten speaks to His incarnation, His manifestation of glory and power. Mary heard something of this when the angel said to her, in Luke 1, he said, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is no ordinary baby. Something of his glory is is revealed to Mary in that, in that moment. The Apostle John heard something uh, along these lines when Jesus came to be baptized. And as he was baptized, you can read this in, in, uh, in Matthew th- chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. When he comes out of the waters, John says this, I saw the heavens open before me. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I'd like to know what that looks like. He said, I saw the heavens open opened before me, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a, of a dove came down and rested upon Jesus, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Peter, James, and John heard something about this at the moment they saw the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, 5, as they, as Jesus for just a moment peels back in some way the, 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 the natural and reveals his glory. He is transfigured in that moment before them. They glimpse a bit of his glory. And as they are doing that, they hear a voice from heaven. That voice happens to interrupt Peter who's trying to take over and designate a particular worship place there that they can build for this phenomenal thing. But the voice interrupts Peter, essentially saying, be quiet. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So through the life of Jesus, as He was incarnated in flesh, There are moments when we begin to see the manifestation of that glory. His personhood as Son described to us. But there came a glorious day. Psalm 2 says, Today I have begotten you. The psalm was a coronation psalm. It was used on coronation day. David was not created on the coronation day. David had been alive. But today, something happened to David in Psalm 2. It says, Today I have begotten you. The king of Israel was being crowned. What David had been and what he was now was being declared and manifested to all that here is the king as a messianic psalm. 
The Son of God is the one in view. So God is saying of His Son, Today, I have manifested exactly who you are. Today, I have declared your undeniable, eternal royalty and your eternal power. And that day, my friends, was resurrection day. That was the day. That was the today I have revealed you as who you are. Today, I have begotten you. Today, I am bestowing that wonderful title upon you for all to see. Paul says this in the first opening verses of Romans chapter 1. With with what we just said in mind, listen to these words. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Now watch this. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection of His Son from the dead. That was the declaration day. The resurrection is the ultimate manifestation of Jesus as the eternal Son who will reign world without end. Angels are ministering spirits. Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. Jesus sits upon the throne of heaven, and angels and us bow before that throne. Amen? Amen. Well, let's get back then to the place here we were at, the second pair of Scriptures. The second pair of Scriptures come from Psalm 97 and Psalm 104. They're found in verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 1. So verse 6, he says, and again, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The psalmist here is actually quoting a passage from Deuteronomy. But, we, but this is the psalm that's being referenced. Let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, and he quotes Psalm 104, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Notice the shift in emphasis. The first pair speaks of Jesus in terms of his eternal sonship. The second pair speaks of angels in terms of their service and their worship of the Son. The third pair of Scriptures comes from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. And again, there's a shift of emphasis. We began in the first pair with the relationship of Jesus as the begotten Son of God. In the second pair, the angels as servants to and worshipers of the Son of God. Now in the third pair, we shift again to the eternal and cosmic authority of the Son. You see this in verse 8 through 9, in verses 10 through 12. 8 and 9, but of the Spirit, he says, quotes Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, quoting Psalm 102, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This echoes what the writer said in verse 2 when he said, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. Now in verse 13, He wraps it up with this grand statement in the form of a question from Psalm 110. You read it in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Brothers and sisters, the, the great day of all days was resurrection day. Because that day revealed Jesus in the full declaration of his sonship, of his rightful place as the eternal king, a day after which he would say to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. <coughs> Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. And that day inaugurated the countdown to a coming day when every enemy is brought under the feet of Jesus. Ha <laughs> ha. And until that day, do remember this from verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Listen, beloved, dear friends. As co-heirs of Christ, you are far more superior in the Father's heart than all the angelic hosts. They serve for your sake. They serve for the Son's sake. And because you are a co-heir with the Son, they serve for your sake. In ways we will never fully know or understand, beyond our counting or our comprehension, angelic hosts, heaven's armies are serving for the benefit of all of us who are to inherit salvation. We are not to be preoccupied with them, nor are we certainly 
No, we're certainly not to worship them. There is only one who is worthy of our praise, of our adoration, our wonderful, exalted, eternal, superior, prophet, priest, king, begotten son of the Most High, the Lord Jesus Christ. If our servers would come. On the night that our Savior was handed over to suffering and death, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He said, This is my body that is given for you. After supper, He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink you. Drink all of it. And then there's that line that's recorded in one of the Gospels. That if you think about today's message, it should have some impact with you. When he says, for I will not drink this again with you until I drink it new in the Father's kingdom. At the great feast of the Lamb. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Are you a co-heir with Christ? Are you seated with Christ in heavenly places? Are you in Christ? Then as the co-heir, God is saying to you, I will not drink this again with you. You keep doing this. Do this week by week. I will meet you here. And I will meet you. Come to this in faith and I will meet you. I will pour out grace. I will strengthen you. I will bring healing to you, forgiveness to you. I will replenish your reserves. I will build you up. Oh, there's so much to receive if we come by faith. He says, but I will not drink it again until that day when I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. That day when all of His enemies have been made his footstool. And by the way, friends, that means and when all your enemies have been made your footstool. Because there will be no more crying. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will only be glory and light and love and creativity and world without end. His government will last forever. Every Sunday, we're counting down. Somewhere, maybe someplace in heaven, there's an angel that's got the clock. (laughs) Maybe the Father's got an angel off to the side who's got the clock. And every time we come to this table and we lift up this bread, we lift up this cup, and we say, Lord, we're looking for that day. And some angel hits the clock. 2,356,000 days. We don't know how long it's going to be. But every Sunday, this is part of the countdown. So rejoice in that through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.